more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Brian Lynn. And I'm Jenna Fryer. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up incoming guests and link to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination was previously recorded, and we are excited to be joined today by Charles Nye, a master's student, soon to be PhD student in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, working with Dr. Scott Baker. Welcome, Charles. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's just get into it. Um, Could you give us your elevator pitch, your brief, what you Tell your aunt what you're working on when they ask you at Christmas. Uh, yeah, so I don't know why they let me in here. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, as mentioned, I am currently a master's student rolling into my PhD here at Oregon State University. I'm based out of the Hatfield Marine Science Center in Newport, Oregon. And my lab is the Cetacean Conservation and Genomics Lab. And for those of you who do not know, cetaceans are whales, dolphins, porpoises, narwhals, belugas, those guys. Um, the core objectives of my lab are to use uh, genomics and genetics to assess how whales, dolphins, all those guys are doing. You know, are they healthy? Um, what kind of questions can we ask about their age, their their sex ratios, demographics, all sorts of stuff. My research pertains to using genetics to answer what whales are eating and what kind of organisms they live around and interact with. Okay, great. And so how exactly do you figure out what a whale is eating? Do you get them like a GoPro and just like watch 8 million hours of footage or? Some of our collaborators actually do that. They do throw a GoPro like in the water and watch what's going on. It's pretty cool. Um, So way back in the day, um, the way you would determine what whales and dolphins eat is you would either find a dead one and cut it open or kill one and cut it open. And thankfully, due to uh, state and federal legislation, we no longer do that here in the United States. Um, So there are really two ways you can find that out now. Either you're at the right place at the right time to see a feeding event, or you're at the right place in the right time to take their poop. And what do you do with that poop? I mean, yeah, you can sort through it, but there's all these digested bits and things like that. But thankfully, we have the power of genetics to assess what was this mass, like what what came out the other end to address you know what the whales are eating. And so that's where I come in is is sequencing and uh, analyzing those uh, sequence data 
to figure out you know the eco ecological interactions that occur with a whale and the whale species that i do that with are gray whales if you have spent any time on the oregon coast during the summer months you'll you might have seen dozens or at least you know a couple of gray whales they are here on mass feeding off the oregon coast during the summer months and while we have a strong idea of what they're targeting is that the whole story of what they're eating oh, we don't know that's what i'm here for <laughs> and my other graduate work involves sampling the environment around uh another species of whale off cape cod massachusetts these are north atlantic right whales these are a critically endangered species and we're trying to figure out what kind of organisms and like community ecological communities exist in cape cod bay using environmental dna and what does that community look like around the whale how do how does their presence how does their absence influence the species around them so what does your like day-to-day -day look like like how does one go around analyzing these sorts of things yeah so uh step one is to get the data or get the, the samples right um my lab has partnered with two other groups um, for the gray whale study we have partnered with the geospatial uh, ecology marine megafauna lab the gem lab that's also based here at hatfield and they go out there every summer on boats to kind of monitor and uh, measure the gray whales as they come through and if they happen to poop they collect the poop and it comes to me my study was actually pretty opportunistic they had started collecting the fecal samples to uh, assess the gray whale's hormones you can get like cortisol which is a stress indicator from that kind of material um, so they could see the, what is happening to the whales how are they feeling um, in the presence of boats and other things like that and then eventually we realized oh shoot there's dna in here not of just the whale but of their prey as well so that's uh that's what they do they, they go out there on a inflatable vessel and they put a, a plankton net in the water if a whale poops and they scoop it up put it in a jar and it ends up on my office <laughs> and for the right whale uh environmental dna um, in 2018 and 2019, my lab partnered with the Center for Coastal Studies based out of Provincetown, Massachusetts. And what they have there is a set of uh, sampling locations in Cape Cod Bay in the water. Um, and for, I think it was a once a day, no once a day, it was um, one research cruise for eight months. So one cruise a month for eight months. They sampled at those stations and we now have a beautiful picture of what the community, the ecological community, the species of Cape Cod looks like for those eight months. And on top of that, they've also sampled DNA in basically right on top of feeding right whales. And we also see what that looks like too. So that's how that's done. You get a liter of seawater, a couple liters of seawater, pump it through a filter, catch all that DNA, and that comes to my desk. <laughs> so that's how... Um, the samples come to me. And from there, I, you know, extract the DNA. I amplify the DNA. We all know what PCR is at this point, um, amplification of nucleotides. And we get um, a certain segments of the genome that we're interested in. And then we compare that to a huge library of DNA sequences from all sorts of animals and plants and things like that. And that's how we get the identities of what's in those samples. So long-winded, uh, a lot of steps, but that's how you go from things in the water to A's, C's, T's, and G's on my laptop. 
All right, so let's start back to step one, getting sample. I mean, whales are huge. Yes. And then you said the sample sits in a jar. And I would imagine a huge animal would have a huge poop. So is the jar very large? Or how exactly are you like, <laughs> That's are, a good question. people gathering these samples? Yeah, yeah. So whales do poop a lot, and it is a big poop. However, in the water column, it tends to like cloud up and disperse. So it becomes a game of, let's get as much of it as we can. And you could also imagine a lot of that is liquidous. So not a whole lot of solid material is left behind, but we get as much as we can. And that can fill, you know, like a like a liter or two of a of, of jar. It's a substantial amount, um, but there is no way to get the entire <laughs> plume um, unless you're holding a net right over the whales behind, which we might try sometime, but that would be, you know, a little risky. <laughs> um, so yeah, a lot of poop, but we can't collect all of it. Okay. And then, so step one was getting these samples. Step two was getting DNA out of them. Mm -hmm. um, and so you mentioned the amplification of some of the DNA and extracting it. But how was, would one like separate DNA from everything else that's in there? Yeah, so there are a few different methods that we use to do that. We use a phenyl chloroform approach, and I don't want to get too into the chemistry of all that, but basically it's, it's a way to isolate the DNA from the other organic and inorganic compounds in not just poop, but from other ways to get DNA as well. We use this to get DNA from skin, from teeth, from hair, from all sorts of parts of an animal. Um, so that process both removes the DNA and, and, and also purifies it as well, it gets rid of a lot of the gunk and all that. But often I still have to do some other chemistry to it to make it purified. You can imagine there's a lot of stuff interacting with the DNA that makes it hard to work with and amplify. So um, I want to look into that. I can attach a paper to the, <laughs> the blog post for this, but it's a lot of um, adding reagents, rocking it back and forth on a... Uh, as we call it a rocker to like mix up the solution and that you know dissolves away all the gunky stuff and we're left with a purified uh 100 microliters or so of dna um it goes from a huge volume to a little itty bitty amount that you, you sweat more than that on a daily basis <laughs> so that's how much fluid we're left with at the end of it and the pcr process is adding a bunch of reagents um into that dna or with that dna tossing it into this device called a thermocycler, which heats it up, and that's when the magic happens. The amplification occurs at certain temperatures. And then we send that off um, after more purification to OSU's genomics core, where they actually sequence all of that. And then I get a huge zip file full of the ACs, Ts, and Gs. All right, so you have your DNA zip file. We move to step three of the process, which is matching mm -hmm. it to another animal. I mm -hmm. know very little about the ocean, but I imagine there's like a lot of animals in there that this could match to. How exactly do you like, is it very time consuming to narrow that down? Do you need like a lot of computer power? Um, how have you made it so you can find these matches? Yeah, so it's gotten a lot easier over the years actually. So we use something called BLAST, which is a common uh, algorithm used in this field. So you have your, a, C, D, 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 right? Like you have your sequence of choice or of interest, right? Uh, one of many. And you go ahead and you plug into this algorithm and it queries and matches against a huge database, a public database of other A, C's, D's, and G's combined from known 
organisms. Like a skin sample from a killer whale gets deposited here as, oh, this DNA fragment was from a killer whale, for example. Um, and that has happened millions of times over the course of genetics research and that has been uploaded millions of times. So using those databases, we can match an identity to that unknown to a pretty good degree of confidence. We choose a section of DNA um, that is shared by basically all life on this planet. It's called uh, cytochrome C oxidase one. If you go back to your introductory biology, stay with me. If you remember the oxygen transport chain, stay with me. It's how you breathe in and out. It's part of your respiration. Um, part of the your genome that encodes for that is shared by everything else that respires, which is basically everything else on the planet. Um, so we have the sequences from that chunk of DNA for basically a whole lot of different species. And so that's what we use to match. Uh, it's kind of like a fingerprint. It's unique per species or pretty close to unique per species. There's a bit of individual vary or a lot of bit of population variation, but we've captured a lot of that variation in other research. So it's a base, basically it's a huge group effort to make sure our species calls are as accurate as possible. I actually go back every couple months and compare again and again to make sure that nothing has changed since my last uh, last call. So it's a lot of uh, bioinformatics, a lot of coding, a lot of effort. But like I said, it's gotten a lot easier over the years. Like I remember when I was in, I was introduced to BLAST when I was a sophomore in undergrad at Cal State Monterey Bay. And we had to use this algorithm at choice times of the day so we wouldn't compete with people in Europe or Asia who are also doing research because um, it would strain the, the query database. But now it's not a problem. But I remember we had to do it at, like, they gave us like a, a sheet of times that we had to do this in or else we would be stuck <laughs> and we couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, that's how that works. Yeah, I love that you brought up BLAST and IntroBio because we do use BLAST in the IntroBio ITA for um, and students all the time. You know, they're like, why Why do I have to use this website? I'm like, listen, scientists use it. And they're like, Brian, do you use it? And I say, no. But now <laughs> I have a recording. <laughs> I was hey, we have proof that yeah. a scientist uses this. Now all we have to do is find somebody who uses the quadratic formula on a daily basis. And then there we go. So it's not close. me. <laughs> So you now like you have all this, you have it matched to a species. What have you started to see with the data of what these whales are eating? Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So we have a good idea of what the gray whales are eating based on tossing a GoPro over a boat or based on the, the stomach cutting of the 60s, right? Um, but turns out it, it's a lot more diverse what comes out the other end. So stay with me, folks. We're going to talk more biology about whales. So if you know about baleen whales, you'll know that they, they filter feed. They, they go in the water and they scoop up a whole bunch of fish and krill and stuff like that. And they squeeze out all the water with their tongue and use the baleen that they're kind of weird, brushy pseudo teeth to keep all the prey in. It's like when you use a fine mesh sieve to keep something from falling out of your cooking, right? Uh, that's how most baleen whales eat. Gray whales are different. Gray whales often go down to the bottom of nearshore waters and they grind their baleen against sand and mud and rock and scrape away a patch of prey. But in the process, they're eating a whole bunch of other things too. So for example, a primary prey species for our gray whales off the Oregon coast are uh, mycids, Neomyces rei. These are kind of shrimpy looking guys. They're real cute and apparently real tasty. 
to the gray whales. That's like their preferred prey, and they're really energetically um, valuable. There's a lot of calories packed into a patch of Neomyces rei, but in the process, they're also getting sea stars. They're getting sand dollars. They're getting jellyfish. They're getting all sorts of other things like crabs and all that too, that they're probably not targeting. But does that mean something for them? You know, when you eat a burger, you're not eating a burger because you love sesame seeds. You're eating a burger because you like eating a burger. <laughs> there's like all that fun stuff and the meat and the sauce and all that. But there's a lot of ancillary stuff in that too. So that does have a caloric value attached to it. So now we're asking, oh, does this, does the collateral damage mean anything for the whale? Or is it a negative? You know, when we eat celery and other roughage and things like that, it actually costs the body some energy to process that because we don't have the means to break that down ourselves. Um, does eating a whole bunch of urchins on a, a bad scoop of the ocean floor, does that cost the whale energy to do? And is that something we need to pay attention to and things like that? So getting a whole lot of what we expect, which are, like I said, the mycids, we get amphipods, other small shrimpy crabby thingies, um, dungeness crab, larvae, things like that. Very like arthropods, crabby shrimpy things of what they're targeting and like, a whole bunch of other things too. Um, so that's where we are with the gray whale stuff. And it looks like based on my analysis so far that within the summer foraging season, the sampling season is May to October. Those months carry more of a, they carry more weight for the changing diet than the years, like the sampling years or the individual whales preferences. So as may transitions across the summer to october something happens maybe that changes what's available for the whales so that's where we are there i'm still trying to pin off what exactly those variables are and next for the um, cape cod north atlantic right whales we're getting a whole lot of their suspect prey which are uh, pseudocalanus and other uh, copepods, another kind of shrimpy thing. These baleen whales love shrimpy things, if there's any takeaway here. They, they love their shrimp cocktails. Um, seeing a whole lot of their prey in, in the path of the feeding whales, so that's good. They know how to find their prey. Hopefully that's the case, right? But also we're seeing that um, there, there are slight but significant differences in the other things around a, a right whale as well. Like there's different phytoplankton, there's different uh, cnidarians and all these other things. What does that mean? We don't know just yet, but it does look different from the rest of the Cape Cod Bay. So there might be an association, there might be uh, ecological links there that could be investigated further by future research. So this is very exploratory and we're very excited to see what else happens. I'm also going to Cape Cod in April to uh, conduct um, a similar assessment in the path of a feeding right whale, but we'll be using this cool like automated DNA vacuum thingy that will take in water um, at certain depths. And so we can see if we can get any different information from that. And it'll also be really cool for me to see a North Atlantic right whale for the very first time. There's 300 to 500 left. And so every single one of these guys is like, you know, a precious you know, organism. And also they're kind of cute, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's what we have so far for those. Uh, so far, like I said, so far, there are a lot of different places we could branch off into um, 
a rabbit hole of analysis. And uh, that's something for me and my committee to duke it out about. <laughs> yeah. So you're in this really cool spot of, I mean, you mentioned it was exploratory, um, which, you know, basically says there's not a lot known. So there's many directions you can go in, uh, which I don't know, is maybe both exciting and overwhelming. But what are some direction? Is there like a direction that you're like most interested in, regardless of what the dreaded committee uh, might have to say. <laughs> I, I, for the record, I love my committee. Yeah. <laughs> you hear that committee? <laughs> um, so for the right whale stuff, there's a really cool hypothesis from the 60s that suggests that gray whales might be omnivorous. Um, when they used to cut open whales, they would find algae and seagrass and things like that in the bellies. And I even see algae and seagrass DNA signatures in my work too, In from this, my current research. Um, so that's an interesting link. There was a paper that came out looking at the stable isotopes of uh, uh, whale sharks. And whale sharks are sharks, they're not whales. But they filter feed in a similar fashion as whales do. But they're a lot less discriminatory about it. They just kind of like go around and swim with their mouths open and they eat whatever. And whale sharks take up zooplankton, they take up animals, and they take up phytoplankton and other algae and plants in the water. And it turns out they can digest those. It's a, like a net metabolic gain as opposed to a loss. And so I'm curious to see maybe what if gray whales could be facultative omnivores as well. And there's a lot of things you have to do to you know effectively demonstrate that, but it could be really cool. And for the right whale stuff, I'm just excited to, to be part of the, the research that goes on about these whales. Because like I said, they're critically endangered. They're a big part of the Cape Cod and the East Coast, like, you know, identity, right? It's a, those are their whales, right? So to be able to contribute to that science and their conservation is very important to me personally. So whatever we can find, I'll take it and we can uh, maybe do something with that to further their their conservation. I, I don't know quite yet what we can do with it, but that's part of the exploratory part, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like the folks out there feel the same way about the right whales as maybe folks from Depot Bay feel about the gray whales that visit them 100%. every year. Yeah. Is there anything that you have found thus far in, in all your work um, that is maybe the most interesting or is a like being a driver of some of these dietary shifts or maybe a hypothesis yeah. you've created from the data you've seen so far? Yeah, so I, the most I've spent a lot of time to think tank for the gray whale stuff because it's just so much more diverse than what I was expecting. Perhaps I should have been expecting more diverse things to begin with. Like I said, they're scraping up everything, um, incidentally, right? Like they're targeting the neomycetes, but there happens to be a shore crab there. Oh no, it's getting eaten anyway, right? Um, I'm curious to see if there's some kind of relationship again with like, of course, the omnivory thing is in the back of my mind always but also is there a break in the dietary preferences of the sexes do male gray whales eat things differently from female gray whales or what if male and female gray whales generally eat the same things but pregnant females eat different things or more unexpected items and what if baby gray whales or juvenile gray whales are eating strange things as they mature we have a we have potentially a fecal sample from a baby gray whale. We're not quite sure if it's mom or the baby because they're both female, um, and, and so hormone analysis and our sex analysis can't really help us there. But um, it shows a 
different composition. There's a lot of arrowworm DNA. So if you don't know what an arrowworm is, it's this weird, you know, like elongated microscopic organism that goes around. It looks like a, a toothpick with a, a pincher set of teeth at the end of it. And it darts around in the ocean and grabs things. Thankfully, they're, they're rather tiny. Uh, I can't imagine what a, a large arrowworm would be like. I would never go in the water ever again, probably. But um, there's a lot of ketognath slash arrowworm DNA in there. And it's like, what's going on? <laughs> what's the situation here? Um, so there, there are a lot of really cool things that we can spiral off from here. Um, and what if that change in the months could be uh, the more generalist gray whales leave earlier and the specialist whales stay up until October? Like they're staying here for a reason and the others leave because we know the whales have individual preferences and like different feeding strategies to capture slightly different things. Again, lots of avenues. And there's always things bubbling in my mind. This is the the beautiful curse of science, right? Like everything you answer branches off or can branch off. There's no never a conclusive answer for anything in any science. That's the, that's also the beauty of it too. It's like we keep asking questions and we keep improving those ideas. So, yeah, I, and that, I love the I love yeah. the question of like, uh, do whales also like pregnant whales also have midnight pickle ice cream cravings? Maybe, <laughs> right? You're right. Like, like what if they just? Oh, I really want a, a sea star. I'm gonna go eat that cluster of sea stars right there. I know it's really bad for me. The doctor said not to do it, but. <laughs> I just really want it. Um, yeah, may, perhaps you know whales are really intelligent organisms, right? As far as we can measure, it's hard to measure intelligence to human standards for non-human animals, right? But from what we can tell, they they have such stark personalities and things. It would not surprise me a single bit if there were a few weird whales <laughs> in our data set doing something bizarre, right? As I study right. dietary preferences in humans, I'm like, ooh. How can I apply some of this stuff to whales? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk later. Maybe we can find something cool. Uh, but so just to take it back a little bit to kind of talk about your undergrad and where this all started, um, you would want to talk a little bit about where you got your undergrad and some interests you had back then that may have driven you down this path. Yes, I was what a, a wee lad in 2015. <laughs> 18 years old, fresh out of high school. I went to California State University, Monterey Bay, also known as CSUMB in Monterey, California. <laughs> um, I was a marine science major way back then. And when I first went in to my undergrad, I didn't, of course, no one quite knows what they want to do when they get there. You know, they just, hey, this is the thing I was told to do. Well, I got to make something out of it. I got four years. Let's figure it out, right? Um, I learned that there was something called scientific illustration when I was an undergrad. You know, like someone had to make the dinosaur diagrams in the books I read as a kid, or the whale books I read as a kid, or the textbooks, right? Someone had to make that. Um, turns out, yeah, <laughs> it's a whole discipline. Um, so that intrigued me for the first year or two I was there. Um, I was taking foundational coursework though, so I didn't take any art classes yet. Or whatever, but it was in the back of my mind that this is where I wanted to go, until I realized it wasn't. <laughs> the the dreaded "oh no, what am I doing with my life?" question came down upon me in my third year of undergrad, or close to my 
yes, it was my third year is when this happened. Um, and then my ecology professor sat me down and we had a light, nice long chat after class about what the heck am I going to do after I graduate? Um, I ended up taking a summer research opportunity at CSUMB and the Molecular Ecology Lab. And then I was doing a population dynamics and differentiation in intertidal snails. So uh, there's these black turban snails, Tegula funebralis, that are all over the coast here in Oregon, like up to Alaska and down through California. They're just everywhere. Um, make the, There are great study species because of it, though. And so we tested to see if their populations were separate or could be considered one population. Turns out they are. It's not published yet, but it's really cool. Um, but that kind of catalyzed my genetics pathway. You know, up until then, I didn't think I'd ever do genetics. I thought I would do illustration. And then here we are suddenly looking at ACs, Ts, and Gs on a computer, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I stuck with that lab up until I graduated, and I went to a few conferences, and it was very, very rewarding. Uh, I look back on those years very fondly, right? All the discovery and the highs and the lows, you know, at the time were the, the beginning and the end of the world. But now looking back, it was a, a good formative set of years. I graduated a little early, a semester early too, so that was rather nice. And then right after that, I started working for the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And then right after that, I worked for the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, or, or MBARI, um, where I stayed for a couple of years before starting grad school. And so why did you decide to switch from like a job at the aquarium, which sounds like a pretty fun, awesome job for someone that likes whales and snails and such, uh, to then moving to a whole other state to to go to grad school? Yeah, so th th that's the big question. So something that, a piece of advice, a really good piece of advice. I know we give it an advice thing at the very end, but something I've been told and I perpetuate is that after undergrad, take a break and do something else for a little bit, do a job. <laughs> uh, it's not generally advisable to jump into grad school just because there's a, a lot you can learn about yourself and about your career trajectory, right? For me, starting the job at Ambari was a, a good way to kind of pivot from the uh, phylogeography, we call it, with the snails, to the environmental DNA. I worked in the biological oceanography lab at Ambari, and we did surveys in Monterey Bay. We collected seawater. We analyzed that DNA for what lives there, how that changes over time, very similar to my work here at OSU. Um, I was a laboratory uh, technician, research assistant was my job title. It was, you know, standard entry-level pay. I had, you know, a good place with friends. And so it, it was a nice set of years I was there, right, learning and growing and working. And I, I had a whole lot of fun. But at a certain point, I, I found that I wanted to start asking questions, right? That job there encouraged my growth and encouraged me to participate in those discussions of you know, how are we going to sample Monterey Bay? Which stations should we visit? You know, I had some input, but I wasn't lead scientist in any of these. And, and at a certain point, I was like, you know what? Okay, I think it's time for Baby Bird to leave the nest and go forward into the universe and figure out what the heck, you know, I can contribute originally to this. Being a technician, you know, is, is a wonderful job for a certain kind of person. And it's a stable job and things like that. But I I've wanted something a little different out of my career. So I came back to school mid-2020, baby, <laughs> to uh, get started on my 
then master's degree. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, that was a time <laughs> uh, starting grad school in the midst of uh, COVID lockdown. But there are some silver linings, right? I got my bioinformatics pipeline written and class was through Zoom. So I didn't have to commute to Corvallis to take coursework. So, you know, made the most of the situation. But that was my main inspiration uh, to come to grad school, to ask questions and to spearhead research. Yeah, and I think that's one of the drivers for a lot of people is getting to explore your own questions um, instead of following someone else's. I like I like the baby bird leaving the nest analogy. I wonder if we could adapt it into like baby whale leaves the pod. Yeah, oh yes, not all whales leave the pod when they grow, but male <laughs> whales will often leave their, or at least male baleen whales leave their mothers. Um, they all do at some point, but males tend to be more vagrant than females generally speaking um but yeah yeah baby whale grows up <laughs> goes on his own goes experiences a pandemic in another state oh yes okay well you made it to grad school you've been elbow deep in whale poop making c's and t's and a's and g's out of it all what is your favorite thing about the, your research, your experience as a grad student, any of it, all of it? Hmm. Well, you know, this is a big question to, to ask, right? Like, there, there, I've done a lot of fun things. Where I've, Of course, the genetics work. I did a really cool summer research uh, assistantship in summer 2022 with the Oregon Marine Mammal Stranding Network. I got to respond to live calls of stranded and entangled marine mammals. Got to do a whole lot of necropsies on marine mammals. Learned a lot about their foundational biology that way. It was really insightful. And I still volunteer with this journey network to this day. I still find it very enriching and educational. So the breadth of you know experiences you get to have here, of course, is top notch. But for me, it's being able to kind of realize a lifelong dream in a different way than what I would have anticipated. What does a marine biologist do? What does a whale biologist do? Those are really big questions and no one has a straight answer because there isn't one. You know, when you're a kid and you read about marine biologists or you watch documentaries, it's so vague. You know, they're on boats, they're scuba diving, but what are they actually doing? And so using these environmental and dietary DNA analyses to answer questions about whales. Right. It's it's just such a different approach than I could have ever guessed when I was like 10 that it, it, I don't know, it, it makes me curious still. It inspires me to keep digging more because, you know, another five, 10 years, there's going to be something else that gets thrown in the mix that just upends everything. And here we go again. And, and that's refreshing. And I love it. Yeah, it's a, a great point you make about the sort of ambiguity behind even just general scientists, you know, a kid and they talk about future careers and there's just scientist with, with no like, other context. Great. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, all right, cool. They wear lab coats and they, you know, in movies, it's like, oh, speak English, please. Right. That, that, that's, that's a scientist. But a scientist is just a person who asks a lot of questions about a thing that often has some kind of public interest. Right. So yeah, there's, there's a lot I've learned over the years, and I would never undo any of it, right? Like, it's all been a additive journey. 
Okay, I know you already gave a piece of advice, but it is our tradition on the pod to ask a, an additional one. So if you could give advice to anyone, um, your past self and current undergraduate, a current grad student, someone considering grad school, anyone at all, what would that piece of advice be? Yeah, I gave this some thought. Um, I, that piece of advice earlier, that's not novel to me. I have been told that by many a grad student in the past, but something, uh, I have two pieces of advice, a professional one and a personal one. Professionally, fall in love with the method you're doing, not the study species, not the location, not any of that, the method. Because once you get really good at a method, or if you understand and you enjoy it, uh, you could apply that anywhere, right? I didn't start researching whales because I did. I didn't rescue a killer whale in California and then get asked to come here because I'm a hero, right? No, I did a lot of good work in environmental genetics and things like that, and got brought on to apply this to a certain group of organisms that happen to be whales. And it happens to be quite compelling. And of course, they spark our imaginations. But starting with the method and starting with what you, what part of this interests you the most is more important than anything else, right? If you love scuba diving, like learn how to do that <laughs> real nice, real well. Um, genetics, learn how to do that real nice and real well, right? But personally, um, Enjoy other parts of life that aren't your work. This applies to many a grad student, I can imagine. We get locked and lost in our work pretty often. It's important to have other parts of your identity come through um, in your professional and your personal life, right? Like, it. Don't try to turn this into all that you're about. Do other things, play an instrument, you know learn how to fish, <laughs> uh, play D&D, &D, I don't care. Uh, just as long as you have multiple things encouraging you to wake up every single day, right? That's getting the most out of your time and out of your life, right? So uh, that's my personal advice for anyone, but primarily grad students. <laughs> yeah, the number of times I hear someone say like, they've forgotten to have a hobby when they get bored, they pick up work. It's like, Heartbreaking, yeah. right? <laughs> Unfor yeah, I've done that too, unfortunately. Like, you know, late, oh, yeah, we're all guilty late being like six or seven, like, oh, I am messing around my R code a little bit or whatever. But it's, you know, we establishing that divide is very important just for your mental health, right? Like, you are more than just the publications you put out or the research cruises you go on or whatever. You are a person and you are multifaceted and you're wonderful, right? So there's that. You specifically, Brian, and you specifically, Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else listening. Yeah, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us here um, today and doing this interview. I have really enjoyed learning about whale poop way more than I ever would have thought I would, um, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> uh, and so we just need one last um, thing from you, which is the song you chose as... Uh, that we'll play as your outro, and then if you also want to share why. Sure. Uh, we're going to send us off with Infinity Signed by Coldplay. This is a newer song from the band um, released in their newest album. It's instrumental purely, and I just I love the vibe of it. It's very just like, it's, it's like science. It just kind of keeps going. It's a very repetitive like loop, and it just kind of melds into this nice kind of like sonic wall. I listen to it to go to sleep sometimes. It's very nice and very atmospheric. Um, 
so yeah, that's that's why I chose it. I just like the the mood of it, and yeah. Perfect. All right, and then here is Infinity Sign by Coldplay. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.